Well, I trust that's true of your life, that God is changing you. The power of his love is changing you, that you are, regardless of your situation, singing out his praise and dancing in his joy and experiencing what it is to have a vital and life-transforming relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what, that's what Christianity really is. So um, I hope that that's your experience and how you're living your life. Well, the world is becoming a more and more dangerous place to live in, as we all know. And uh, the events of this week are certainly, I'm sure, at the front of your heart and your minds as you think about uh, life. But I can tell you that this side of the hemisphere is a lot different than the other side. And where uh, our brothers and sisters this morning, uh, wherever they are, are worshiping the Lord, there are difficult times as you can imagine. And we are getting reports from our, our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world to ask us to pray for them and to remember them. If you are in, in church in Gaza this morning, you have no idea whether a bomb is going to land on you or not. And so these are difficult days, and uh, certainly in Ukraine, and uh, you know when weapons of mass destruction are put in the hands of sinfully insane people, it puts uh, ripples of fear and, uh, and concern in all of our hearts. And that's what we want to address this morning. Uh, because the question that we really ask this morning is, can times of suffering become times of vital evangelism? And the answer is, absolutely. Yes, they can become times of great witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pause for prayer. Our Father and our God, we, we come before you this morning with uh, burdened hearts, burdened hearts for our brothers and our sisters in, um, in desperate situations in parts of the world that are, are in conflict. And Father, we recognize that these are, these are unpredictable days from human perspective. Father, I pray for all the families that are grieving the horrors of war and conflict right now. I pray for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine and in, in uh, Palestine and in Israel. I pray for our brothers and sisters in Iraq and uh, certainly all kinds of other places in the world, Lord, but in particular those crisis places right now. And I just pray, Father, that you would um, give opportunity to the leaders of churches on both sides of the political situations of all of these scenarios to bring honor and glory to Christ, to call out in the name of the Lord, to urge people in these days of fear and suffering to come to the Lord, who invites us to the burdened and weary to come to Him, and He will give us rest. Oh God, I pray that you would help us here to recognize the moment and the opportunities that are afforded us to be bold witnesses of the truth in our lives and in, in how we live. I pray, oh God, that, that we would be changed by the power of your love, that, that our lives would be noticeably different and changing so that others around us would see something in our lives, oh God, I pray. I, I pray that you would... Um, take us deep into the emotional heart of the text this morning so that we would understand 
what is being presented to us and the opportunity that is ours, regardless of the situation, to be bold, to be witnesses, to be those who are thoroughly captivated by the heart of Jesus Christ in how we live, I pray, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You know, some of the history of the Bible becomes more and more real to us, I think, as we live in real-time history and realize that um, in so many ways we've romanticized so many of the Bible stories of the past. The great courageous faith of the, of the Bible characters of the past who were made to either bow down and worship the, the gods of the land or forfeit their lives. And I think there's a, a distance that we've probably, uh, that, that has probably happened in our lives as we look at these stories and say, well, they happened 4,000 or 5,000 years ago or however long ago. And these very things are happening right now as we preach the word of God. You know that in Mosul, the Christians are being told there they will either pay a tax or convert to Islam or move or die. Well, that's not that dissimilar to the kinds of things that happened at the time of Daniel or in King Nebuchadnezzar and other uh, horrific dictators that, that have imposed those kinds of things on the people of God in the past. This is not new. This is, this is a consistent pattern of the godless. And so there's an important message for us as we seek to be evangelists of the good news of Jesus Christ in very hard times. Perhaps there's no more powerful, it's no, perhaps more powerful than the words we say, at least initially, is the lives that we live. And that's what I want to propose to you this morning because the lives that we live are what present to us an opportunity to receive an invitation to speak into the lives of the troubled. Consider the lives of people outside of Jesus, the lives that they are living. If you look just beneath the surface, they are riddled with fears. There's no answer for unwelcome tragedy that comes to their lives. They hide their hopelessness under layers of substitutes and superficial Friday night friendships. They sacrifice their future that they believe offers nothing by risking it all in an impulsive fling. The community that they claim to, to hold so dearly to or can be daily shattered by strife and jealousies, bitterness and betrayal and serial relational letdowns. And so when you consider the lives of people outside of Jesus, I think the question that should leap out at us is, is why wouldn't the world be flocking to Christianity? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever, have you ever wondered about that? Perhaps the reason is because far too many Christians are manifesting the same fears as people without Christ. The same insecurities, the same issues of comfort or discomfort and health or ill health, safety concerns. Uh, maybe it's because um, our message has become muffled by 
generalities. Maybe we, we no longer are really proclaiming the boldness and confidence of, of uncomfortable truth. John Stackhouse, a professor at Regent College, 10 years ago wrote this in Faith Today. When we evangelicals have argued with each other over gender or divine foreknowledge or hell or whatever, we used to argue primarily over the scriptures. We might also have had recourse to the sciences, history, tradition, ecclesiastical authorities, personal intuition, or even common sense. But the deciding factor was always the Bible. Postmodernism has led us to become more skeptical about final claims to absolute truth. It has led us to be fuzzied into a license to believe whatever we like without feeling any obligation to conform to your views to what actually is the case. So if someone, say, the church claims the Bible restricts sex and marriage to a man and a woman, well, that's just one way of looking at it among others. Who can say for sure? And so I'll resolve the matter on the basis of what I do take to be obvious and fundamental, namely, the right of every person to be happy as he or she sees fit, so long as no one else is hurt in the process. Now, keep in mind, he's writing about Christians to Christians. He's not writing about how the people that we minister to are thinking. He's writing about how we're thinking. We're starting to say things like, I'll resolve the matter on the basis of what I, I do take to be obvious and fundamental, which is the right of every person to be happy as he or she sees fit, so long as no one else is hurt in the process. Once we give up on serious Bible study and resort instead to the basic thrust of the Bible, or the main message of the gospel, or some other convenient generalization, we have no place to stand against the tide and nothing to offer our society that our society is not already saying to itself. So maybe the world is not rushing to Christianity, number one, because we are manifesting the same fears as people without Christ, Maybe it's because we don't really know anymore what the Bible really has to say about anything that really matters. Or maybe it's because we don't really feel for lost people. We don't really even like them. And maybe we feel very much against them. And to top it all off, we witness a lot of mistreatment and tough times happening to people who seek the right ways of God. And so we look at that, and the combination, we're like passionate about the things of God and about truth? Are you kidding? That'll just get me into trouble. That'll just cause more suffering in my life. But what if? What if God could use the rough stuff in your life to catch the attention of those who don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? What if God could redeem suffering for his salvation purposes, for his witnessing purposes? Would you turn in your Bibles this morning to 1 Peter chapter 3? 
I, I want to uh, point out to you that the disciple, Peter, wrote a letter to God's people everywhere, but in particular, he wrote to certain regions. You can, you can read that at the beginning of his letter. But he wrote to a people of God who were in difficult circumstances, tough times, suffering, suffering for what was right, suffering for the truth of Jesus Christ. Perhaps some of them were wondering if it was worth it to serve the Lord. Perhaps some of them were considering just simply giving up. And he writes in his letter in 1 Peter over and over again that mistreatment and tough times can be some of God's most powerful tools of evangelism. Now, we've already stated that perhaps no time rips at the credibility of our testimony like tough times. Emotionally, it, when times are rough and we're seeking to serve God, we want to lash out. Or we want to get angry at somebody. We want to get bitter. We want to fight back. Or we want to maybe cave in. Or, or by our behavior, we, we confirm perhaps to other people around us that, that you know what? Maybe it doesn't, doesn't pay to serve the living Christ. All those temptations come our way. Or, or we could choose to live completely differently. And that's what's proposed in 1 Peter chapter 3. I want to read it to you here, and then I want to make a couple of observations. Just a small section. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? And I think we would answer that question. Everybody wants to harm us. I mean, that's, that's how you answer this question, but, but he, make, he wants you to pay attention. Stay with him here. Because he realizes what he is stating here. And he says, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Note that. Then he goes on to say this, do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. I want to stop there. I want to propose to you this morning four vital attitudes to have in order to be a, a witness and a testimony of the great things of Jesus Christ during tough times. So whatever comes your way, uh, this is a prescription for how you can be used of God to minister powerfully in the name of Christ. How you can turn hard times into a cause for evangelistic victory. And First of all, you must get over the it doesn't pay to be good syndrome. It absolutely does. It does pay off to be a righteous person and to serve the Lord with all of your heart, in spite of what you see around you or in spite of what you're feeling. And this message is intended for you. If you're going through a tough time, if you're suffering in the midst of seeking to serve the Lord righteously, be encouraged this morning by this truth. And the first is this. 
you will turn a hard time into an evangelistic victory, a gospel victory, if you would rather be blessed than comfortable. That's the key statement here in verses 13 and 14. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you are, even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. In truth, we like to think in our lives that doing the right thing would minimize suffering and hurt. I mean, that's kind of the way we were raised when we were little kids. We were told, you know, if you, kept, if you keep the rules, if, if you do everything right, or you keep your nose clean, then, then probably it's going to go well for you. And suddenly when we grow up, we realize, actually before we grow up, we realize that not always does everything work out because you are seeking to do the right thing. In fact, regularly seeking to do the right thing causes you to be in a very, very difficult time and a very difficult situation. Well, Peter says here, um, I concede to that. He says, I, I mean, Peter knew what it was to suffer and what it was to be in persecution and struggle. He's writing to people in the early Christian church who knew what it was to suffer for their faith. It was an unpopular situation in the early stages of, of the, uh, uh, of the uh, first century to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we all know that unjust suffering can really kick the stuffings out of our spiritual passion. And it can cause us maybe to want to back off a little bit. Why don't you just sort of back off? Why don't you stop being so outspoken about the things of Jesus? And maybe it will go well for you. And there's a moment where we think about comfort versus suffering versus the Lord. And I want you to notice that, and we'll talk about this, but this first couple of verses and the last couple of verses of the segment kind of bracket our emotions and our attitude that are key to how we can live victoriously in suffering. If being comfortable is more important to you than being blessed, you will struggle your whole life to serve Jesus Christ with a passion. Now by being blessed, I simply mean to be on the right side of God, to honor the Lord, to commit yourself to, to pleasing Him, which is more important than anything else. If, if comfort is more important to you than pleasing the Lord, then you will back off. You will struggle greatly during times of suffering. But his point here that he's making is, even if you suffer for righteousness, even if you suffer for standing up for the Lord, don't you understand that your status before God is blessed? Don't you understand that, that you are in the most enviable of all places because the Lord is pleased with you? And so the point that he's making here is that if blessing is more important, then who can really harm you? If pleasing the Lord is the most important thing in your heart, in your passion, then who can really harm you? That's why he could say that. That's why he could make the first statement. He really meant what he said. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? In other words, who is really going to harm you if you are only interested in your whole life in pleasing the Lord? If God is for us, in other words, who can be against us? That's the point that he's making here. If you are living for God's approval, it means that you're eager to do good. And it means that you're living with purpose and not at the mercy of random emotions. And this sets you up 
to be, to be mightily used by the Lord during difficult times. Because meeting your purpose of pleasing God makes everyone else's attempts on your life irrelevant. So what is success to you? That's the question that has to be asked. What is success to you? Is it being blessed of the Lord or being comfortable? Because times will get tough. There, we, we know. We only have to pay attention to the news. We only have to look at our own lives. We only have to look at the people in our own lives. So what is success to you? Uh, Peter says, if being blessed versus being comfortable, if being blessed is most important to you, then you will be able to weather anything that comes your way with victory and be a powerful testimony. Because if that is so, we get to move on to the next attitude. If, in fact, you have in your heart an attitude that blessing is far more important to you than comfort, that value will liberate you to be powerfully proactive in your Christian life. So much so that, secondly, instead of being afraid of the things that most people fear, you will be able to constantly visualize the Lord high and lifted up in your life. See what he says here? Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. We're not supposed to be like everybody else. We're not, we're not supposed to live with the same fears that people who don't know the Lord live with. We're supposed to live completely differently. We're supposed to be able to live completely differently. And how does that happen? The choice is, made, the choice is set for us here. You can be afraid of the things they are afraid of, or you can have faith in a powerful God. You can see the Lord high and lifted up in your life. But you can't do both. You can't both be afraid of the things they're afraid of and also see the Lord as high and mighty and lifted up and sovereign God, powerful God over all the universe. Now, now what are fears really? Have you ever thought about what fears are? I took a stab at a a definition didn't bother with the dictionary so who knows if it's right or not but this is how I see fear fear fears are negative possible outcomes presently unrealized fears are negative possible outcomes presently unrealized I'm afraid of something that might happen or I'm afraid of how that might turn out as opposed to think about this as opposed to faith in God the living God who is in charge of all things. Now, here's the choice in your life that is being made for you. You can either be afraid of, of unrealized outcomes that are possible, or you can have faith in a God who has the whole universe in his hand. That's the presentation that's made for us here. That's the opportunity and the way that we have been presented an opportunity to live. Keep in mind, fears... If allowed to be in your life, settle themselves in the deep places of your emotion. In fact, fears grow from our heart at the very central place of our emotion. Most of our fears are not all that rational. They're really more emotional than they are rational, and they settle from the place of emotion. And so what's the counteractive to this in the text? 
It says, rather than do that, rather than allow fears to settle in the emotional center of your life, you have the opportunity, because you know the Lord Jesus Christ, to set Christ as Lord in your heart. In fact, the word there is to sanctify Jesus. Now, that's not, that, that's not making the Lord more holy or anything. That, that's the, that's the, uh, the use of the word, the use of the terminology is to set apart or, or put in place as prominent. The opportunity is for you to displace irrational fears with a powerful, transforming Jesus Christ. That's the presentation here. And keep in mind, this is not just for us. The whole presentation of this text is for the outsiders who are watching our lives. It does no good to talk a good sermon about how great Jesus is. It does, not talk a, it does not no good to talk a great sermon how important it is to honor the Lord if in our lives all we care about is comfort and we're afraid all the time. It, it makes no difference to the people who are watching us, and it certainly ruins our own lives. But the presentation here is to intentionally replace fears of negative possible outcomes with spiritual shout-outs concerning the truth about your sovereign, saving Lord. In other words, put the Lord where your fears are, and everything will change in your life. That's what, what Peter's teaching here. Now, you may be saying, I, I don't really know, I don't understand practically how you put the Lord in the, in the central place or enthrone the Lord in your heart at the very center of your emotions so that really he's got the prominent place. Really? You don't, you don't know how to do that? Well, you know how to do that with all kinds of other things. You know how to do that with people in your life who you really love and care about. You know how to put them in a prominent place in your heart. You know how to put uh, uh, hobbies or enthusiastic, things you're enthusiastic about. I know how to put the Bruins at the very center of my heart. We all know how to do that. You know how to put the Leafs there. That's a greater, greater challenge than putting the Bruins at the heart. So if you can put the Leafs at the center of your heart. It's about time about investment of energy and resources, money, about our focus, uh, about what we spend our time uh, devoting ourselves to the things that really matter to us. Listen, it's not, it's not rocket science. This is, we all know how to do this. The question here is, will Jesus get to that place in your life? Will you put him there? Because if you put him there, fears run away. You can't have Jesus prominently in your heart and have fears too. It won't happen. This is a replacement that is being offered to us here. Instead of being afraid, set Christ apart in your heart. That's the alternative that's presented here to us. Fear the Lord, in other words, more than you fear the things that lost people fear. Doesn't it just make sense to you? Shouldn't that be the way we live? Why would we be living with the same fears that people live, that live with who don't have the Lord, who don't know him? Why would we, why would we live like that? 
the, the fact that we have the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives, watching over our lives, giving purpose to our lives, moving his plans forward for us, ought to give us the opportunity to live completely differently than the people around us. You either live a life of fear or you live a life of faith, but you won't live both. That's what sanctifying him really means. Replace fear with faith in your powerful Lord. After all, look at verse 22 in this same chapter. Let's pay attention to who Jesus Christ really is in your life. It says, he talks here about Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Do you you wonder who's in charge of the universe and, and who's actually operating with full authority over everything that there is? It's Christ. The description here is all encompassing. Christ is in charge. So if we rightly prioritize our life, if we fear God, we will fear nothing else. If we don't fear God, we will fear everything else. And you know what happens when that's the case? Do you know what happens when we, we're building a case here. When we live for the blessing of God rather than the comforts of life, and when we allow fears to be chased away by faith in God, we become a novelty in life. We become very unusual. We become very noticeable. Whether it's in your neighborhood or in your family or in your workplace, you stand out because you're unlike anybody else. Other people are living for comfort. Other people are frightened of everything. But you're not. You're living for the blessings of God. You're living for the the, the statement of well done, good, faithful servant. You're living by faith in Christ, not by the emotions of fears. It gives, Peter gives us the impression here, strong impression, that when you live like that, people take notice and they will ask. He says here, when you live like this, then you need to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. You're, you're going to be noticeable. And so rather than allowing random circumstances to kill hope, you're prepared every day to be hope-filled. Now, life on the outside of Christ finds many reasons to feel hopeless and to kill hope. Hopelessness characterizes the vast majority of the people in the world. It's the state of the the emotion of the masses of our world are without hope, nothing really to live for, no prospects for change. When they're in a situation that's difficult, there's not much hope to get out of that situation. Our whole lives have been shaped by evaluation. Think about this. Since you were a little kid, you were graded or scored, kept score on you, or somehow you were given rewards for this or rewards for that, or rewards weren't given for this or for that. 
but we've been evaluated our whole lives. People grow up with that sense in their life that, that there's always an evaluation. And, and, and keep in mind that the people who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ have this foreboding sense in their lives that there is a final evaluation. They don't know exactly how to put words to it or how to shape it or what it exactly is, but there's a sense inside of everybody because that's how we were made, that there is a sense of a, an impending ultimate evaluation. And that's why people try to live their lives in some way to, to, to be okay when that great evaluation comes. I hope that my good works uh, outweigh my bad works because I know there's some sort of evaluation at the end. You go from culture to culture and everybody's trying to buy off the gods somehow so that the final evaluation will work in their favor. This is an amazing opportunity for us who know the Lord Jesus Christ. Because most of the world is uncertain about how it's going to turn out in terms of that evaluation. They're not sure about their lives. They're not certain that it's going to be well. You talk to most cultures in, in the world, and they will I hope, I hope it's going to work out, but I'm not certain it's going to work out. But that's not how we are to live. We're not wondering how it's going to turn out for us. We, we have a sure hope. We have a certain hope. People are to, to notice in our lives, why, why is it that Peter could say, you, you need to be always prepared for everybody who's going to ask you why you have hope? Because they don't have it. Life on the outside finds so many ways to kill hope, but not so with us. We're to face life every day emotionally prepared, full of hope that people might notice it in our lives. And this is not some superstitious hope. This is not some hyped-up emotional hope from some guy talking to you from a platform. This is based on truth and fact and what you know to be true in your lives. The right preparation will minimize random reaction and, and attract specific curiosity. Having the Lord in your life know, means knowing what is and what will be. Think about this. Perhaps some of you have known the Lord so long you've started to take this all for granted. You've forgotten what it's like to not know what will be and not know what is. To, to be bewildered by life most of the time, randomly wondering what's going on, what's going to happen. But those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't live in a random life. We know what is and we know what will be. At least in what matters. It's disturbing, really, that just at the time where we need to be urgently preparing our own souls on a day-by-day -day basis and valuing that preparation for the sake of the lost, that kind of preparation in the average Christian life has fallen on hard times. I'm not sure if you've been following along, but there was a study just completed by the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. And that study gave the alarming result that Christians, those who claim to be Christians, 
Only 14% of those who claim to be Christians actually read their Bible weekly. Not daily, but just weekly. The majority, 86%, read their Bible seldom or never. Now, just at the time when we are being called by the challenges of a, a world gone crazy to be prepared in our hearts to live every day with hope, and where does that knowledge of hope come from but the Word of God, what is and what will be, Christians are departing from the very place, the very source of their hope, the knowledge of the Lord. And um, this should alarm you because this number that was just reported is a 50% drop from just 1996. We're, we're on it. Christians are on a free fall away from God, not toward Him. And we're being called here, and Christians who were in this particular situation were in a far, far more difficult scenario than we're in. We're being called here to live lives where it's just assumed that wherever you go, people are going to notice that you have hope. Well, where are you going to get that hope from? If you're not reading the Word of God, if you're not studying what is and what will be, we are always, there are some superlative words here that are being used. We are always, always to be prepared to explain your hope, not the hope of somebody you know or some Christian or some preacher or whatever, but your own personal hope to every single one who the writer of this text assumes is going to ask you. People are actually going to ask you why you are the way you are. That's what's given here. So the only way that that can happen is for us to live preemptively. We need to stand firm with the belt of truth, as Paul writes to the Ephesians in Ephesians 6.14. To be filled with readiness, that's, that's what the scriptures teach us there. We're to have our feet shorn with the sandals of the gospel of peace. We, you don't get that unless you're reading the word of God, unless you're studying God's truth. We are to know what we hope for. We are to know what you hope. How salvation changes everything. When someone asks you, why do you live differently? Well, it's because salvation, because knowing the Lord Jesus Christ changes everything about me every day. It changes how I think. It changes how I dream. It changes my ambitions. It changes the way I interact with people. It's changing everything about me. It changes everything about me on a daily basis. And, and that salvation not only changes who I am, but it has set me free from myself and has set me free from having, being a slave to sin. That salvation has pardoned me so that I'm forgiven. In this great evaluation that's coming, I know that I'm forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he comes again, that, that I will be received to him and it tells me that, that, that all of history is moving ultimately toward a face-to-face -face confrontation with the Lord Jesus Christ. Do we understand that? Do we as Christians know that? That all of history 
is moving ultimately toward a confrontation face-to-face with the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason I'm hopeful is because I know Jesus as my Lord and Savior, as my friend, as the one who loves me, the one who gave himself for me, and I can't wait to meet him face-to-face. But the rest of the world isn't hoping for that. They're in a state of hopelessness and despair. And our lives should characterize that day by day. I know my Lord. I know who he is. I know what his plans are. I know where he's taking me. I know where I'll be. And I'm hopeful every day. And people should look at that and say, why are you so hopeful? That's the message here. Our lives should be completely different. We should be living our faith out loud. Rightly preparing your life, those with hope are a novelty. Hope is so desperately in demand. I was praying for our, this morning, earlier, I was praying for our brothers and sisters who we know in the world, you know. Because you get emails, even this morning I got an email from Nazareth about our, our pastor's church that's under great stress there. But I was praying for our, particularly for our church in, uh, in Odessa, Ukraine, which, by the way, is in a Russian-speaking difficult area. And the name of their church is Hope for People. Hope for People. In a world of hopelessness and despair and frustration, we, as God's people, need to walk around every day being hope for people. That's who we are. And ultimately, we do this. And when your life is hopeful and most noticed, it is likely a time when you are under great stress and suffering and challenge and people notice that you are not acting like everybody else, but you are acting with great, great hope. And that's when the final attitude can be demonstrated in your life. When is it most difficult to treat people well? Isn't it when we're under stress and under suffering and under challenge in our lives like these people were? And and Peter goes on to say, and when you give this, this presentation of your answer for your hope and why you're not frightened and why you'd rather be blessed than comfortable, do it with gentleness and respect and a clear conscience. While you're under great stress, you rely on Christ's help to major on the personal touch. When you're at greatest risk, when suffering is really bearing down on your life, you are at most risk of mistreating people as opposed to evangelizing them. That's why it's so critical to call in the Lord so that you won't become hard and arrogant and harsh. You can't sell, you can't hard sell hope with spiritual pride to those already struggling and suspicious. That's why he uses the word with gentleness. Proclaim your faith and your hope with gentleness. Keeping in mind that that the people out there in despair and hopelessness are struggling and suspicious. It's the opposite of the word truculence. 
It's treating people with, with very gentle spirit. Remembering how you once were. You were once lost. You were once suspicious about the things of God. You, you were once um, suspicious about, about Bible thumpers. You, you once struggled with those people who seemed hopeful over in, in all the circumstances. So treat them with gentleness. They're afraid. They're hopeless. They're riddled with guilt. Don't run over people like a truck. But not only does he say with gentleness, but he also says here with respect. And that word respect actually is the word fear. Phobos. It's a respect for God. In other words... God so cares about the lost that you better handle them really well with reverence to God. That you, better, that you better understand that the moment they ask you why you are hopeful, there's an intersection of eternal lostness with eternity, eternal life. And that is a sacred moment that God has entrusted into your hands. A very sacred moment. You know when you go into those stores and they got all this fancy stuff in them and you see those little signs that say um, nice to look at, nice to hold, but if you break it, consider it sold. You've seen those in stores? That's how the Lord wants us to handle the lost. With a gentleness and a reverence and fear of God, respect recognizing that their souls are precious to God. And he has given you an amazing opportunity at the intersection of lostness and faith. It's a very sacred moment. And then he says, finally, with a clear conscience. Unless you have moral and spiritual credibility, the lost will have nothing but disdain for your message. If people can pull holes in your story of what is versus how you live, you are done. Sometimes we stop, you know, with the gentleness and respect. We stop there. No, you can't stop there. Peter doesn't stop there. And I suspect that the reason so many believers are failing to reach the lost is because we don't have a clear conscience. We can't even face them. Because our lives inside, in hiding are no better than their lives. And we have nothing to say to them. It's a package deal here. You start out by saying, I would rather be blessed of God than comfortable. And the backside of it is, I know I need to have a clear conscience before God to be used of Him at all. And if those two things come into place, then my faith and my hope will fashion my love for the lost and many will come to know him. That's how it works. Our Father, I pray this morning that we will take your words and allow them to shape our hearts and our thinking. 
that we, in fact, Lord, might be used of you in powerful ways to bring a message by our lives and by our words in the times of suffering and challenge. Lord, I pray that you might cause us to long for your approval over any comfort. And to not be frightened the way they're afraid, but rather to entrench our faith in Christ in the throne room of our hearts. And to be ready and prepared, because we are hopeful, to live hope. And then, Father, to realize that all of this becomes a powerful opportunity to reach into the lives of the hurting and the helpless and the hopeless and the harmed that they might know what it is to meet a God who loves them and cares for them. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Let me leave you with a question to think about this week. If a neighbor or a friend of you, a lost neighbor or friend, was really searching for a radical change in their life, would they turn to you? Our Father, I pray this morning that our lives would not just speak about the truth, but that we would live out the truth. I pray, Father, that the very core of our emotions, that we would live with a great desire to serve you and love you and see your, your approval rather than our own comfort. That, oh God, I pray that we would not be afraid of the things that other people are afraid of, but that by faith we would have confidence in our sovereign God who loves us and cares for us. I pray, Father, that our hope would be so evident in how we live that everybody would ask us to explain to them the reason we are so hopeful. And I pray, Father, that our disposition, regardless of whatever situation we're in, would so care for people that we would respond with gentleness and reverence for our great God and that our lifestyle would be characterized with a clear conscience, that we could look at them hopefully and with great faith, knowing we have nothing to hide, but that our lives are an open book of the right ways of God. Oh, Father, would that be so of us? Would you grant us that? Because, Lord, I, I'm pretty convinced that we could turn this region upside down if our lives were absolutely completely different. So Lord, help us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.